1: Flush dot com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we're joined by a Formula One veteran, starting off life as a journalist before being persuaded by Ron Dennis to lead the comms team at the McLaren F1 team. He's worked with the likes of Fernando Alonso, Jenson Button and Lewis Hamilton, experienced the ups and downs of championship wins and Spygate. Matt Bishop joins us to discuss discuss his career to date his new ventures with the W series and how he's turned his hand to writing and is now a published author thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen if you like it please do leave us a review it really helps us to get bigger enjoy
0: Welcome to the latest episode of our Gearing Up series. And before I introduce today's guest, I need to head to Essex. And did you know that the famous English county is home to the second largest village green in the UK? Great Bentley's green covers an incredible 43 acres. And in Edwardian times was even used as a golf course. And these days is used for village events and even a nicely topical motorcycle rally. However, we're not here to bring your attention to Essex. We're here to interview another interesting personality from the world of motorsport. And to do that, I need to bring in my teammate, ally, collaborator, and indeed friend, Harry Benjamin. How are you? Thank you, Tim. I'm very well. Um, it's quite
1: an Edwardian area, actually, Essex. I think I've, I've worked out. It's very all the houses are quite Edwardian. It's kind of so. I'm, I'm not surprised by that fact. But yet again, you've done a stellar job with yet another ridiculous fact. I know. Um, thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, I am well. Um, to ruin the illusion for listeners, this is the second. Second one of today. So, yes. how are you? Kind of seems a little bit. Uh...
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> how I, have you been? I have changed my how are, how am I status since an hour ago when we had our last oh, yeah. podcast because it was cooler then. It was still quite early in yeah, the morning, and, yeah. and it was bearable in my uh, shed. Now. It's really hot. So I'm, swe- I'm sweating considerably. So it, uh, I apologise. If we do put this out on, on video, I apologise in advance to anyone watching this and seeing my disgusting, red, sweaty oh, British lovely. face. yeah, yeah but, yeah. but there we are. Um, anyway, uh, enough of our rambling. Shall we bring in today's guest? Absolutely. Let's do it. So, I'm delighted to introduce you to a man you might well be familiar with from his extensive CV, which includes the likes of the W Series, the McLaren F1 team, Car Magazine, F1 Racing Magazine, and more. Um, he's also a writer and has recently come out with a novel, which we'll touch on later. He's also actively involved in supporting LGBTQ inclusion, diversity, and discussion in motorsport. It's a great pleasure to welcome Matt Bishop to the Motormouth Podcast. <laughs> Hello, hi Matt. Thank you so much uh, for
1: joining us. Round of applause, as ever. Um, how's life been? First of all, 2020, absolute madness. All interviews have suddenly become via Zoom. Motorsport came to a stop. How have you navigated it all?
2: Yeah, we're all Zoom experts now, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs>
1: 2020
2: has uh, is a is a is a year we'll never forget. Um, yeah. Motorsport point of view, you know, obviously my. My main focus, my day job, is com- communications director of W Series. W Series very sadly had to take a sabbatical this year. I know other motorsport obviously has got going again, but we thought very carefully about it and decided as not only a startup but as an international startup with drivers that we have to ferry about, not only Europe but also. Brazil, South Africa, United States, America, Japan, and so on, Russia. Uh, the logistic um, uh, challenge of getting our drivers to our cars, to the circuits we might be able to race in, was just mm. impossible. Uh, particularly as one of the pillars of W Series is not only, of course, that the drivers must all be women, but also that we will charge them not a penny piece for racing, which includes, by the way, all their travel, all their accommodation. So it actually became very difficult. Anyway, we did have the W Series eSports League, two races, sim races across 10 circuits involving all our drivers, uh, working with Beyond Entertainment and uh, iRacing and so on and so forth, streamed on the BBC. And that was, I think, very effective. Um, This again, of course this is the COVID-19 year, but it's also the year from our rather smaller perspective that sim racing exploded and I think was in the vanguard of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we're huge fans of the W Series, and we we attended the uh, one of the races last year uh, at Brands, and um, and we're hugely impressed by it, and and seeing you know that the mobs of uh, small young girls, um, you know, running up to the likes of Jamie and and um, and others, it 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 warms the uh, warms the heart, and and it's great to see um, women's uh, motorsport finally um, coming to the fore, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, one thing we want to touch on. On with you is we always like to get under the skin of our guests and find out where they've come from and, and where's home and all that sort of stuff. So take us back a few years. And what where was home when you were growing up? Um, what was it like? And, and were there any indications at that stage of what was to come for your
2: career? Well, you kicked off by talking about the Edwardian age. I'm not quite that old, <laughs> I was born in 1962, so um, in London. Uh, which fair city I have lived in every day of my life since. Obviously, I've travelled. I've travelled extensively for work and holidays, but I've never lived anywhere other than London. Um, I was brought up in a, a normal home in um, in, in uh, a part of London that wasn't then very well-to-do but is now, Islington. Yeah. Uh, there's pictures of me playing football uh, in the street as a kid with not not a single car to be seen wow. on a road now, which if you walk down it, you'd find parked cautious. <laughs> so, you know, life has changed. Anyway, um, uh, for some reason, and I don't know why, because my mother was a novelist and my father was a classical concert pianist. He disappeared. Well, when I say disappeared, he left my mother quite soon. I'm still very much in touch with him, but he left my mother and wasn't, therefore, so much a part of my upbringing as my mother was. I was brought up by my mother. But but neither my father nor my mother, I don't think, had actually even heard of Formula One. I genuinely think they wouldn't have heard of it. They would have not known what it meant. They would have thought it was a chemical formula, perhaps a coffee (laughs) cure. They had absolutely no idea. And yet, springing out of I don't know where... Came an obsession with cars in the first instance. So I would walk down the street or even be pushed in a down the street, and I would, little nerd that I was, uh, identify all the cars, long lost brands, Morris Oxford, Austin Cambridge, Wolsey Hornet, Riley Elf, etc., etc., Humber, Super, Snipe, and so on. And I'd just call them out, and my mum thought, I think she just thought I was. A little weird, really, and then because you have to remember that Formula One wasn't even on television in, in those days. Formula One wasn't in, on television on a regular basis in the UK until the late seventies. On a regular basis, occasional races, usually the British Grand Prix and Monaco, appeared before. But in the in the you know late sixties, when I was a, a nipper, not, not on the television, not on the radio. Not in the newspapers, other than in four-point at the back in the posh newspapers like The Times and the Telegraph, along with the croquet and the bowls. And even then it would just say, first, Jackie Stewart, second, Jochen Rindt, etc. And it wouldn't say who was fourth, fifth, and sixth. And it wouldn't say that somebody had led the first 30 laps until their engine had blown. So you have to remember it was a complete minority sport, but I spotted a magazine called Autosport in a newsagent in 1972. And I've never seen a car like that. Because it wasn't a Wolsey Hornet and it wasn't a Riley Elf. In fact, in fact it was Jackie Stewart's Tyrrell. And I was mesmerised. And I bought it as a kid. I was nine years old and probably nine towards ten. And I read it from cover to cover.
0: How, how nice um, to have that um, that sort of level of clarity at that age, to know, uh, you see that car, you're like, that's it. That's that's what I need to be involved with. And, and such a nice position to be in, to think, that's it. I've found my calling. I'm, I'm, I'm done.
2: It was an epiphany. I can tell you, it was an epiphany. I thought, that, that is the business. Amazing.
1: I- when, when did the moment click, though, for, or was that the moment when you were like, well, I want to be a journalist, I want to write about this as well? Because the fascination was there, but was also the idea of being a journalist and, and writing about this and communicating the sport, was that there at the same time?
2: I remember I was nine. What I would have, it was, was race raced the car.
1: Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a frustrated car? racing driver? Is that what it is? <laughs>
2: Half of the, the media centres yeah. of... All sports events are populated by frustrated (laughs) players and drivers and so on. Um, uh, In fact, it's one of the things, uh, you will come to this later, when I uh, worked with the likes of Lewis Hamilton and, and Jensen Button and Fernando Alonso, one of the things I used to say when I was trying to persuade them to do something like be interviewed or appear for a sponsor and they were being truculent about it, I used to say, listen, Lewis, Listen. You're one of the lucky ones. You're quick. I wasn't quick. I was absolute crap. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I've got to do this damn fool, stupid job. And you can go flat through Eau Rouge. So will you please go down and see Vodafone now? Yes, yes, I will, Bat. yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: brilliant yeah how yeah well i'm sure we'll um we will touch we'll touch on uh, your, your days there um in a little bit so so that's really but yeah as tim said to have that clarity is so it's so nice and obviously when you're nine years old i suppose that is the dream to go faster going going round and round so well then in that case when when did the moment come then for you to be like actually okay i think um there, there's a career here that i would i would like to pursue and then how did you start to to go about that
2: well I was a clever boy at school, but not an industrious one, and therefore didn't do particularly. I did well in O levels, which is you know what you call GCSEs yeah. now, um, yeah. but but underperformed significantly in uh, in. Um, I sound like Ron Dennis saying that. No, <laughs> anyway, messed up A levels. I think we could to use normal non Ron speak English, and uh, it's very catching Ron speak. I you. bet, yeah. Oh. Anyway, um, I messed up my A-levels, didn't go to university, and instead went and worked in a factory, Unigate. That was quite handy because I could tell people I was at uni. But anyway, (laughs) uh, I then did various other odd jobs, and one of them was being a betting shop manager. Um, And also moonlighting in the evenings at London Greyhound Tracks, which are, I think, all closed now. White City, Wimbledon, Wembley, Romford, Hackney, Harringay, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. They're mostly Sainsburys now. It's anyway. Wembley was fun because it was actually at a the then, you know, fantastic football stadium. Um, uh, you know that all the FA Cup finals and the 1966 world cup final were played in and so on and the dogs ran ran around the track ran around uh, the track that was laid out around the edges of the pitch so you went to this extraordinary huge stadium with a couple hundred dog fans I have to make sure i don't say dogging we used to call it dog
0: <laughs> that, don't make now. that mistake <laughs> yeah
2: yeah <laughs>
1: I think we've greyhound. just got. The, that's we've a got, the, we've got the teaser now. We've yeah. got the podcast teaser now. Yeah. So uh, I'll clip that up.
0: Lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. We used to go say, dogging.
2: There will be this. There will be greyhound racing discussed. Oddly, and dogging, but not in that way. Not in that way. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so you'd be rattling around in this extraordinarily wonderful stadium, and I used to work uh, there as well. Um, uh, with some of the rails or, the, or, or the, the actual bookies down by the by the rails. Mm. Man, John, uh, legend, actually. Now, uh, uh, nobody will have heard of him, of course, but he was a legend in that rarefied and small world at that time. Anyway, I got to know a man called Jim kremin who was, <laughs> talk about a niche, he was Greyhound editor of the Racing Post. And he, um, he said to me, you, you, you know, you express yourself. You're, you've got the gift of the gab. You could write something. Why don't you write me a couple of little columns about something to do with greyhound racing? So I did. And they were reasonably well-received. And, I mean, it, it's an astonishing way into my career when you think about it, isn't it? But what happened is that I then... I mean, life was easier then. Life was easier in terms of getting employment. Uh, And and remember, there were gazillions of newspapers and magazines because there were absolutely no websites. So, you you know, it was was just a busy field uh, with lots of opportunity. Not necessarily big money, but lots of opportunity. Anyway, I ended up... uh, I've always been a careful technical writer, and I realised I had that natural ability or fussiness, going back to the nerdiness. And I became a sub-editor. First of all, France, and then I got my first actual media job, which was sub-editor of Car Magazine. So I'd moved away from Greyhounds and into automotive journalism via an unusual route. But then I became the features editor of Car Magazine, working with legends such as LJK Setright, who very few people watching this will have heard unless they're my age, Edwardian, but um, I was away. Then I was away, and I was writing about cars and writing about motorsport, and I had found my calling. You very much
0: changed the way motorsport reporting was done in the written word. You had a new way of of reporting it, um, using different language, different way of talking about the sport, even different imagery. Take us through some of that and how you've seen the landscape change over the years.
2: But I was very lucky. Uh, from Car Magazine, I was then headhunted by Haymarket in 1996 to become editor of F1 Racing, which was a new magazine and the first big mainstream English-language Formula 1 magazine since GPI, Grand Prix International, which had been a feature of the early 80s but had ceased to exist. And I arrived at a time when... We had some fantastic narratives. We had Damon Hill versus Michael Schumacher. We had Bernie Ecclestone and Max Mosley, you know, extraordinary, almost pantomime villains running the sport. We had all sorts of other great characters, Frank Williams, Ron Dennis, Eddie Jordan, all of these people. And then quite soon... We were hit with a problem, which was that Michael Schumacher and Ferrari started winning absolutely everything. We enjoyed the Hill era and the Akinan era, but then we got into the Ferrari winning everything era. And it's a, the elephant in the room, which is the same elephant that's in today's room, is that the same person winning all the time, however brilliant he is and however brilliant his team is, does rob the sport of an important ingredient that makes compelling all sport, which is suspense. Yeah. And there wasn't any then, and there isn't enough now. We might talk about that later as well. But what we realised is that the sport about which our magazine was devoted was itself not delivering in terms of entertainment, so we had to find different ways to actually... This sounds arrogant and... It isn't meant to be, but to, fu- to make our magazine more interesting than the sport itself. Yeah. So to do that, we devised three bywords, or I, I suppose I did, with brilliant members of staff uh, who are still friends, such as Peter Windsor, legendary writer, Tom Clarkson, great writer, now superb podcaster, Darren Heath brilliant photographer, and so on. Others who I should mention, but I probably haven't got time to go through more, and you'd get bored. <laughs> anyway, we discovered that we were going to make every single thing in the magazine, if possible, would tick the following three boxes. It had to have style, it had to have access, and it had to have authority. So style, it had to read well, it had to be premium, it had to look good, it had to be beautifully graphic designed. Access, absolutely key. We had to bring the reader to a place that watching Murray Walker would not bring them. Yes, they'd already seen Murray Walker commentate on Michael Schumacher winning yet another Grand Prix, so we had to take them behind the scenes. Whether that was... You know, these are actual stories, whether that was Fernando Alonso, a little bit later now, early twenty first century, and Mike Gascoigne taking their Renault Formula One car to Concord and comparing and photographing the two together, whether that be snowboarding with Max Mosley, I kid you not, mm. whether that be climbing Everest, Not actually all of it, but we perhaps drew a veil over some of that detail with Alex Fertz. (laughs) All of those things. So bringing the reader to a place that they had never been and never seen in terms of not only Formula One drivers, but actually, I think it would be fair to say, top class sports stars of any kind. Yeah. That was successful. And the sponsors absolutely loved it. And of course, there was, as I say, there was no website, no social media, and none of that. So every time Vodafone or Shell or whoever it was wanted to activate, they had to do so on the printed page or in television. Television would just so show a fleeting glimpse of their logo. Our magazine enabled our readers to luxuriate in... Fascinating stories with style, access, and authority, beautiful photographs displaying their logos. They loved it. And once the sponsors started loving it, they told the teams, We love it. And that helped with the access. Because I would literally go to Ron Dennis at McLaren and say, I gather you've got only X amount of time with Mika Hackenan at Monza. I gather he's doing a half hour interview with Auto Sprint, Italian magazine. Just so you know, Ron, they have 50,000 readers in one language, Italian. We are in 34 languages, on sale in 110 countries and about 3 million readers. By all means, choose our sprint, but I'm going to be having coffee with the people from ExxonMobil and West and all your other sponsors later. So think on, Ron. Generally they would change it and we'd end up with
0: Yeah, you you can carry some nice power when you you suddenly have that sort of access and and content that people want to see in eyeballs is effectively what it comes down to, doesn't it? So interesting and and, and fascinating to hear the power and the grip you had over someone as powerful as Ron Dennis. And and let's talk about Ron. So he became a bigger part of your life because in 2008 you ended up becoming Director of Communications at McLaren. So uh, how did that opportunity Opportunity come about, and and you spent many of your your uh, your years there. What was the, what was that whole experience like working with someone like Ron?
2: Well, yeah, I spent ten years at McLaren. Uh, Ron and I, for some reason, because he liked the magazine. By the way, he likes things that look good. You know, Ron's attention to detail is one of the things he always boasts about. But actually, it's attention to presentational detail. He wouldn't spot a split infinitive, but he'd. What a wonky floor towel. Mm-hmm. So he liked the magazine because it looked so good, because of Darren's photographs and because of uh, the design. And, you know, he sometimes used to... He used to um, jokingly commend us for your vocabulary, your vocabulary, he used to say. Anyway, he offered me a job in 2001. We, he and I were having lunch at Manucor in his office in the then... Motorhome, old style motorhome, of course. It wasn't the right job. It was a press officer, and, and in those days, a press officer, really, particularly apparent because Ron didn't really like the whole idea of marketing and media. He liked commercial. He liked money, but he didn't like really, didn't really get journalism in that sense. Uh, so his press officers uh, were usually enjoined to write a press release, print it out, and then walk round the press room handing it out. And occasionally, you know, having a lunch for journalists. That was it. It didn't rock my boat at all. I thought it was a bit dull, it was a bit anodyne. And why would he have paid me significant money to do that job? But we stayed in touch and we met often. Um, We had lunches and we had dinners Always, thank goodness, paid for by him because he used to go a long way down the wine menu towards the bottom. I can tell you, um, and I don't know why we were chummy, but we were. We're so different in so many ways, it, different in more ways than you can imagine, really. And um, but nonetheless, we we hit it off. And then in 2007, and of course, I interviewed him often, and and um, and he used to open up a bit to me, and it was it was. Good interviews. Then in 2007 was McLaren's Anus Horribilis, Spygate. Mm. And Ron was in the guano. You know, Mike Coughlin, the McLaren chief designer, had been found by the police, by the way, not by the FIA, by the police in the UK, to be in possession of 780 pages of Ferrari IP. It was an extraordinary scandal, an utter disaster for Ron. And he rang me. What can I do about this? I said, I've got to report it, Ron. You know, I was then not only editor of F1 Racing, which by that time had become a completely international magazine in a gazillion languages, but also I was editorial director of the Sport Group, which encompassed Autosport, autosport Autosport.com by then, Most Sport News, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I said, "Look, Ron. I, you know this is going to be a big story. This is going to be page one in all our magazines. It's going to be extensive. You, you know, you can't just take me to one side and ask for advice because I'm going to be briefing our journalists immediately. So think on. I'm, I'm, I have to be honest you, with you about that. There's nothing that can really be off. Oh God! Oh, no, 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 Matt. I'm, I'm in the. I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble here. Anyway." The long and the short of it was the next Grand Prix was the Turkish Grand Prix. And he rang me on the Thursday and said, could you come into my office? By that time, the McLaren Motorhome was called the Brand Centre, that huge, still used, reflective, um, slightly uh, scary building. Anyway, he said, uh, come in. So I went up and he said, right, okay. I know I offered you a job before, but this time is real. You've got to come and work for me. You've got to come work for me, you know, because I'm in trouble here. And he was, by the way, because Max Mosley had an extremely able uh, director of communications, Richard Woods, who I became friendly with, or I had already been friendly with, and am now still we had a bit of a hiatus in that friendship because of the professional impossibility of it being continued during the period I'm going to describe... But, but Richard wouldn't mind one describing him as a spin doctor. You know, he was an, an Alistair Campbell of Formula One, and Ron had never hired anyone with that kind of strategic um, bent. And, you know, if you've got Alistair Campbell on the one side and you've got people handing out press releases and offering coffees on the other, you know, it's, it's, it's not a fair fight. He finally realised that. He said, I need a strategic comms director. I need somebody who understands media, who understands journalists, who understands the Formula One landscape, who understands Max Mosley, Bernie Ecclestone, Ferrari, and, by the way, who understands what Richard Woods is playing at. And the funny thing was, out of the 7 billion people in the world at that time... That Ron knew and trusted there was only one person who remotely ticked any of those boxes, and it was me. So I was very lucky. And we discussed the matter in Turkey, and then again at Monza, which is the next race, and then again at Spa, which was the next race after that. And then we agreed terms at Spa, and I was able to, (laughs) well, leverage my good luck into significant... significant so that was another very, very, very good
0: bit of luck for me now, Before we move on to what you're doing now um, and W Series and your book and so on the the public perception of Ron Dennis rightly or wrongly is as you say a man who has um, a huge attention to detail um, a bit of a taskmaster um, it's his way or the highway w- was there another side to Ron that, that Joe Public doesn't know about? <coughs>
2: Ron Dennis is a crazy genius, you know, and I wouldn't mind saying that in front of him because it does describe both sides of him. But don't forget the genius side. He is a genius. But of course he's maddening and of course he's eccentric and all the stories about his fastidiousness are absolutely true. I once asked him, I said, Ron, is it true is it true that you have your gravel laundered at home every six months? I have heard that. Is it true? And he said, no. <laughs> no. Every three months. <laughs> I just knew that was going. <laughs> anyway, that, that, that is wrong. And I, there's stories like that I could tell you about him. But he, you know, but then you look at what McLaren was. Hmm. And... Opus of that man who was born in a humble home in Woking, uh, did a you know did a did a, a, a course in mechanical engineering at Guildford Tech, became a mechanic, and ended up, which he still is as we speak now, in terms of. Championship Formula One Grand Prix wins the most successful team principal in history. And we are including Enzo Ferrari, Colin Chapman, Toto Wolff, etc. Mm-hmm. Ron is at the top of the tree. An astonishing achievement, not achieved by accident. Genius. Another side to Ron that people don't realise is because he's shy, he, he, he often appears very austere people find him off-putting, frightening even. Actually, he wants to be loved, which is actually a pity because he's not very good at getting love. Mm. Uh, I don't mean people haven't loved him, you know, uh, uh, wife, girlfriend, children, etc., etc. And indeed, people who work closely with him. Absolutely. And he's got a very good heart. But he hides all of that under a bushel. And people who don't know him find what I'm saying hard to believe. But if you ever get ill, my goodness, you're lucky if you work for Ron Dennis. Mm. I had an appalling back problem, a totally herniated, slipped disc. I mean, I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit up, absolutely banjaxed. And Ron managed to get me in with the specialist, which he just did by, you know, haranguing him and threatening him. (laughs) The guy said, you know, my surgery opens at eight o'clock and I'm absolutely full for the next three months. And Ron said to him, my man will be in your surgery at 7.30, so you make sure you're there and awake for him because he's coming in at 7.30 so you can see him half an hour before all your others. And the guy did. This is a very, very, very senior neurosurgeon. And I was up and back at work on my feet within three days. Wow. So there was a good sense in it to Ron, but you know, I would have been absolutely all out of ideas other than Ron doing what he does so well which is brow beating people whether it's a senior doctor to see my comms director or it's Vodafone you must open your checkbook yet again for a <laughs> he huge job. got Bond's he, brilliant
1: in that way he got the the job done I suppose um he yeah. spent an amazing an amazing decade with with McLaren and I'm curious to know you know Of all the highs, of all the lows you had, I'm assuming you had to deal with the likes of, you know, Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso, uh, the the pit lane incident in Hungary and their their general demeanor towards each other. Later on, I suppose there was a few incidents with with Jensen Button and Lewis Hamilton as well. You know, how do you look back at your time at McLaren and what some of the the standout moments, the highs and the lows? You
2: know, I worked with three world champions, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button, Fernando Alonso, and all brilliant, obviously, in three different ways, or in, in many different ways, in fact. But for me, Lewis Hamilton, I mean, look, I always have said in my... There are three inseparably brilliant <coughs> Formula One drivers of all time, which I would say Fangio, Clark, and Senna. But I now think one has to add Lewis to that, you know, I think one has to add Lewis to that. And by the way, arithmetically, he has now, at 90 Grand Prix wins, won exactly the same as the cumulative total of those three greats. It's unbelievable, 24 isn't it? and 41. I told you I was a nerd. Told you yeah, a nerd. yeah good, you good
0: nerdy fact, that one. Oh.
2: <laughs> anyway, um, so the highlight of my career is clear to say, which is... Being in the McLaren garage, and look, I can hardly talk about it without um, breaking up. I have to say, I find it so emotional to remember. But being in the McLaren garage as Lewis passed Timo Glock on the last of the last lap of the last race of the season to become world champion, 40 seconds after. The race had been won by Felipe Massa, who was already celebrating in the cockpit and whose team were already celebrating in their garage. You couldn't write it. It was the most dramatic denouement that I've ever known of, certainly in Formula One and perhaps, perhaps in many other sports as well. It's hard to talk about without welling up, I have to say. Yeah, it's an it, extraordinary.
0: It, it it was an extraordinary um, thing to witness, and, and from a you know from a, a watching perspective, you know you remember looking at it on the TV and seeing um, Massa and his family and you know jumping up and down, and thinking, "Oh, it's, we've done it, we've done it!" And then that awful moment where they realise they haven't, and and they go to despair. And and to be at the heart of that must have been unbelievable.
2: Yeah, they go to despair and then and then the last scene of that extraordinary little video is a, is a Ferrari mechanic headbutting the monitor if you notice. No. <laughs> yeah. Don't <go>. worry. <laughs> yeah. Look, I felt very sorry for him. Obviously we were absolutely overjoyed. And don't forget, you know, the company McLaren had nearly died the year before yeah. because of spygate and we were 1 year later. Mm. Talk about redemption talk about redemption not only winning the world championship but doing so in that way against the old enemy Ferrari it was utterly utterly amazing but uh, one of the things I'll always say is what a fantastic uh, person Felipe Massa is you know he won the race in his hometown he thought he was champion he found out he wasn't he stood on the podium tears streaming down his face with his fist across his chest as the national anthem was played. and But the day was all about Lewis, and he was a footnote to Lewis making history. But about an hour later, I was in the paddock, and you have to remember the Interlagos paddock is incredibly congested, no room at all, and there were a million journalists, TV people, uh, TV interviewers, all sorts crowding round us as we were doing these interviews, and I was taking Lewis from here to there, from this crew to that crew to the other crew to this group of journalists, and so on and so forth. Suddenly pushing through the crowd in red, this figure, little man, looked up, raised his hand. Louis, congratulations, Felipe Massa. Yeah. That must have that was that must
0: have taken well. a lot. Long- yeah, it's a, cl- a classy move. It's a classy move, really classy move. Class. Um, you know, classy
2: move. it's not- always recognized it for what it was, I tell you.
0: Yeah. It's, it's just nice to hear those sort of nice sportsmanship what stories. Memories to have. Yeah. What what you know, the the the
1: vivid imagery of that is is just incredible. Um but, well, so what, what an amazing stint in Formula One. And, and now we find you, of course, as we've already said, the day job is now working on, on the W Series, and you move towards that after Formula One. Um, we've already had Catherine, of course, uh, on the podcast. Um, are you enjoying it there at the moment? What's your take on the world of, uh, uh, you know, what, what we've said on the podcast before is actually a lot of people... Um, dismissed the W series to mm. begin with they they didn't agree with the idea of having a women's only championship and we you know we chatted, even the women uh, themselves yeah we we were just about to say we chatted with Abby Eaton mm. on the podcast and uh, I believe uh, Alice Powell has said as well that you know they, they didn't quite agree with the idea but as it's gone on and after an incredibly successful first season you know being on Channel 4 as well in the UK free to air massive network the, it, it, they realised what the goal of the championship is, I think, and, and that's almost for it to not exist, in a way, years down the line. How, how have you found the journey you've been on? Obviously, this year is a, is, a, is a bit of a write-off, but still managing with the eSports events. So, to, to, put, to cut my long-winded question short, <laughs> how is the W Series going out and what's your view on the future of it?
2: Well, I went on the same journey. You know, David Caulfield, who I'd known for years and years and years, rang me up and said, I'm doing this thing with Sean Wadsworth, who is now our chairman, and Catherine Beaumure, who you mentioned, is now our chief executive, and he said, are you interested in if I describe it to you? Because he knew I'd left McLaren, which I did do in, in the middle of 2017. And this conversation probably happened at the end of 2017. And I was setting myself up as a consultant or thinking about doing that. And so I said, well, tell me. And he explained, and I was sceptical, for all the reasons you've just said. Then I met Sean, and then I met Catherine, both separately, and talked more with David Gouvard, and I began to get it. And I've now become not only, you know, an employee, communications director, full-time, but also an absolute, you know, um, evangelist for W Series. And people who criticise it because they say, why segregate, I think have missed a point, because that's my immediate reaction when I, was, when I first heard about it mm. as well. But what's happened so far? Look, the existing experiment has failed. Formula One has been in existence for 70 years, 7-0. Seven it's always been open to men and women throughout that period. And yet throughout that period, there have only been two... Women about a 1,000 men, but two women who have actually started a championship Formula One Grand Prix, one of them 44 years ago and the other one 62 years ago. Mm. So it's not getting better, mm. it's getting worse. And doing nothing didn't seem like a very proactive option. So what we decided to do is create a series called W Series, performance positioned at the level... Formula Three, when female drivers generally begin to fall off the ladder or hit the glass ceiling, whichever metaphor you prefer, because they generally get through karting and might touch Formula Four. But then, usually, Daddy, not always Daddy, but usually Daddy says, Right, that's it. I'm not going to spend any money more on you because I cannot believe that you are going to return the investment because there has been no precedent for 44 years. So, Whereas if it's his son, and I'm sorry to talk about daddy rather than mummy, but it is usually daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if it's his son, he can convince himself that little John is going to be the next Lewis Hamilton and will soon be earning 20 million a year. Therefore, why on earth are we walking at this 300,000 or this 700,000? Obviously, I'm talking about rich daddies. Anyway. But when it's the daughter, there is no... Root, There is nothing to emulate. They say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And Daddy says, no, tell you what, love, I'll buy you a pony. And they stop racing. That is what we found happened. So we discovered that we would create something which would be the next step. Performance positioned at the place where they normally fall off. And we created something. And by the way, because another big problem with international single-seater racing is that it costs an absolute fortune. So it is now the province of... I don't know. It's a billionaire boys' club. Mm. We decided we want to make it not a boys' club, but also not only for billionaires. So we pay not only all the costs of the racing, so they don't pay a penny piece, we also don't charge them any accident damage. Accident Damage is a significant cost for young drivers usually. And we don't even charge them travel or accommodation. We pay for all of that. As a result of which, not only are, are our drivers female, but many of them are absolutely skint. You know, we have drivers who deliver pizzas for Deliveroo in their spare time. Pay the rent, and yet there they are on the podium, yeah, at Brands Hatch or yeah. Hockenheim free of charge for W Series. Yeah. And for me, that's something to be proud of mm. not just because of diversity and inclusion, though, of course, that but also because of a democratization <laughs> of a sport that in many ways has become literally prohibitively expensive, yeah. Mm. One day, if one day one of our drivers, and I'm not saying it's one of the existing ones, it may or may not be, some of them are obviously too old. For instance, one of our best drivers, Emma Kimelina, uh, she's, she's great. 31. Yeah, she's a mum. Yeah. Yeah, she's not going to race in Formula One. I'm not so silly as to think she will. But if one of them in the future does go forward into FIA Formula Three and perhaps Formula Two, and perhaps why not? Yes, let's say it one day, Formula One which by that time may well be the first time a woman has sat and raced a Formula One car in a championship Formula One Grand Prix for what might well by then be half a century. But what a fantastic thing to have been part of making happen. 100%. I'm happy that day.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're huge fans of the W Series. Um, as I say, having watched it live, but also seen it on TV and been involved with one or two of the drivers, Um it, I'm interested to pick up on your point about one day. You know, will we have a Formula One world champion who's a female? Will we have a, a World Endurance uh, Championship world champion who's who's a female? M- my take on it is, I, I I firmly believe that we will, but I think it'll be some time purely because of the life cycle of W Series, and it's so new that it it needs that time to bed in and get more and more and more and more females into into motorsport get the bums on seats and you are at some point going to find that lewis hamilton female equivalent or whatever but it feels like it could be a few years is that fair or do you think that's that's too much of a a, a harsh and, and simplistic view of it
2: no i think that's absolutely fair you know as i say you know some of our best drivers in w series now are probably not going to be in formula 1 because they're, you know, they 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 are too old and don't forget formula 1 has a youth fetish anyway you know max verstappen moved the goalposts yeah. quite away um, you won't get another Damon hill you know who arrives in formula 1 in 30s let's not forget that won't happen again um, so no I, I agree with you they If there is to be a female Formula One driver and a successful one, it is probably a little way away. But when she arrives, and I'm going to just paint a little picture for you. Imagine that you are sitting in front of your TV screen on a Sunday afternoon and you've had a lazy day and you turn on the telly and you hear the following broadcast on the news. Today... In Monte Carlo, Jenny Jenkins won the Monaco Grand Prix. Second was Max Verstappen. <laughs> Third was Schalke. Now, that woman is suddenly going to be the biggest star in the world. Yeah. I think that's almost fair to say. Yeah. The biggest star in the world. Yeah. 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 Certainly something we should be working for. And my goodness, this is also the pitch to sponsors because W Series does have sponsors, does need more. And, you know, a, a W Series driver to go on that journey and end up in the place that I've just described, you know, a great place for sponsors to help them on their way. Yeah.
1: journey. That kind of thing sends goosebumps down me. It's uh, imagine, wouldn't that that just the scenes, you're right. Immediately you're just you're world famous. god, that wouldn't it would just be incredible. Um and 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 as you said, W series is perfectly placed to 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 start the groundwork for that. Um let's move things forward a bit speaking about diversion and uh, diversion diversity and inclusivity you're you're quite a, a pioneer for the lgbtq plus community as well and and how is that um how is that landscape looking to you there's been a lot of conversations happening of course over the last year especially of course with black lives matter coming into the, well i say coming into the foray but should should be there all the time but um how is that looking from, from your perspective as well? Uh, so I listened to you uh, on Jenny Gow's um, show uh, the other week. It was fascinating to hear your thoughts on that as well. And we've had Charlie Martin on the show too. What's your take on it, or obviously coming from the world of Formula 1 when it wasn't quite so accepting?
2: Yeah, you know, um, I'm 57. I arrived in Formula 1 30-odd years ago, 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, I was the only gay in the Formula 1 village at that time. Well, that was out. Um Things have got a lot better for marketing people and PR people and journalists and people in those kind of professions in Formula One, where being gay is seen to be perfectly okay. But for a mechanic, not so much. And even in 2020, which is astonishing. And I know this because I speak to mechanics because I'm a founder, ambassador of Racing Pride, uh, which was set up last year, 2019, in association with Stonewall, and seeks to do a lot of good work, I think, with um, junior drivers, male and female, well, LGBTQ+, um, in karting and so on. But I don't focus so much on that. Because of my Form 1 background, I mostly focus on... The mechanic issue, mechanics and engineers, because for some reason in those macho professions it is not yet quite acceptable to be gay. Well, that is the fear of many of the mechanics who do not all come out and therefore live a lie and therefore work for 10, 15 or 20 years for McLaren or Williams or whoever it is and never introduce their partners to their colleagues and tell lies about why they aren't married and don't have children, or even tell lies saying they're not married when they are to someone of the same sex as themselves. That can't be right. And I also think that the teams have a part to play. You know, even five years ago, such a plea would fall on deaf ears, I'm sure. But now, just think a bit more inclusively about your language. Teams. Don't ask mechanics, you know, would uh, how, how's your wife? How's your girlfriend? Don't uh, immediately just phrase it in that way. Take the trouble to be a mensch in 2020 and say, how, how's your partner? Just in case you're talking to a gay man who is frightened of admitting it probably for no good reason, but because of vestigial feeling that I work in a white, male, heterosexual sport that will not accept me and will not accept diversity. Hasn't had any women for years Mm. other than in menial jobs, or that's not fair to say, in uh, associated jobs like PR and marketing. So not as chief mechanics, not, of course, as drivers. And it's dripping with money. So, yeah, it's a very privileged and rarefied area. And uh, my work with Racing Pride, um, I'm very proud of. Uh, And they're brilliant people to work with. And, of course, I've introduced a couple of uh, W Series drivers who are now also Racing Pride ambassadors, uh, Abby Eaton and Sarah Moore, both of whom, of course, are lesbians, um, Alton Cloud, and... W Series, indeed, one of the pillars of W Series, one of our brand values, is to be absolutely welcoming and embracing of all difference, all diversity, uh, whether that's LGBTQ+, plus or race, or anything else. The only thing is we won't allow meant to drive for cars
0: (laughs) yeah no that's a really right quite right that's a really good (laughs) message and it certainly made as you were talking there um about you know the way you talk to people in the paddock it made me think because it's one of those subjects that until you sit down and and consciously think about it you do just naturally say yeah How's your wife? Uh, how's your husband? And and we've we've talked a bit about the Black Lives Matter movement on this podcast with various people. We have Willie T. Ribs and talked about racism in in motorsport that exists today that's still horrific. And it made us think more deeply about um, the, you know the colour of someone's skin and and what that means or doesn't mean. And I think this sort of conversation with someone like you about inclusion for other reasons, whether you're man, woman, transsexual, gay, lesbian, whatever, certainly does make make me think about the way I talk to people. And and. Uh, we need to spread that message as, as far and, and wide as we can. So thank you for that. I think that was a really important little segment.
2: You're welcome.
0: Um, now, I want to move on to a few more quickfire questions. We could talk for hours. Um, let's let's kick off, though, um, with your book. You are now a novelist as well as everything else you've done. Um, tell us a bit. Uh, there, t- there it is. is. The boy made the difference. The boy did make the difference. Tell us about the book.
2: <laughs> Shameless plug time. Eh, uh, go
1: for it. Not at all. Firstly, congratulations as yeah. well for, for getting thank out. Thank you, thank you very
2: much. Look, uh, I I loved writing as a journalist. Absolutely loved it, and missed it when I uh, ended up working for teams. Loved the teams too, but uh, and W series and so on. But creative writing, yeah. And my mother was a novelist, and my grandmother was a novelist, uh, and so it's it's in my blood in that way. And I suppose when my McLaren chapter came to an end. 2017. I didn't immediately throw myself back into normal paid work in motorsport because I thought, why rush? Why rush? Maybe you've got a chance. I was 54 then. I'm 57 now. I thought, maybe I've got a chance to write a book. And I thought I had a book. Yet. Nothing to do with motorsport. And First of all, all proceeds from it will go to the charity that I set up in my mother's name when she died of cancer in 2013, the Bernadine Bishop Appeal, that obviously was her name, um, which fundraises for Click Sargent, which is a charity that helps children and young people affected by cancer and their families. And when I say affected by, obviously that includes uh, terminal cancer. <clears throat> so a, a magnificent charity that i have been fundraising for personally uh, for quite some years. It was actually Eddie Jordan that got me into it, funny enough, uh, uh, about 15 years ago. But anyway, all proceeds go to the Bernardine Bishop Appeal, which fundraises for Click Sargent. And the book is set between 1989 and 1991 in London, which is obviously where I was living at that time. And The narrative backdrop is the HIV-AIDS crisis of that time, which was absolutely devastating for gay men in particular. Obviously, it was devastating for everybody who knew them and families and LGBTQ plus people in general. Not that we knew of that uh, phrase Mm -hmm. in those days. but Gay men particularly were hit in the Western world by HIV-AIDS enormously badly and... Of course, AIDS is still a killer globally now, particularly in areas where the um, antiretroviral meds, which make it not a killer in the Western world, are not available. Sub-Saharan and so forth, you know. But it was an enormously uh, depressing and horrible time. And of course, I personally lost a number of friends. And I worked as a home support volunteer or buddy in my spare time for a thing called London Lighthouse, which was at that time the biggest HIV AIDS centre in the world, actually. Uh, And just helping people, helping people with AIDS in whatever way it might be. You know, I wasn't a medic, I wasn't a counsellor, but that isn't what your home support volunteer or buddy is supposed to be. It's helping you with things that no one else will help you with, which might be going round and running the hoover round because you're too ill or too depressed. Or it might be taking you to the cinema because your black, brown and purple and blue lesions as a result of the Carposi's sarcoma on your face are so unsightly that you don't dare go alone without people yelling abuse at you. So you need somebody able-bodied to stand there and put a metaphorical arm around you and take you into the Odeon. Or it might even include holding your hand as you pass away. And I've made this novel sound about the most depressing thing (laughs) in the the history of literature. It isn't. That is the narrative backdrop. Uh, And I wanted to tell that story because, thank goodness, AIDS is not the killer that it used to be in the Western world owing to antiretroviral meds. And so I found that younger people didn't really know quite what it was like, including younger gay men, like, for instance, my husband, uh, Angel, who is uh, 31, so significantly younger than me. And he knew about it in a historical sense, but he didn't know what it was really like. And I thought that was an interesting story to tell in a completely fictional way. But it's about a nuclear family, mum, dad, son. Not everybody in it is gay. There are heterosexuals in it as well. Uh, it is sad, but um, it's also funny, uplifting, and full of um, br- brave people. Uh, um, yeah. So that's the boy made the difference. There you go. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll point drop a link in the uh, in the description. Popularity. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll, uh, we'll make sure we point people in that direction. It sounds like a fascinating story. Um, now, listen. Let's uh, let's change tack slightly. Um, hidden talents. Have you got any?
2: Snooker. Oh. Snooker. Oh. Not a bad snooker oh, player. Good one. Um, uh, <laughs> not brilliant. Highest break, 63. and uh, But absolutely love snooker. Uh, always did. Um, don't play nearly as much as I'd like now. And by the way, haven't had a 63 break for years. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I get a lot of breaks of one now. <laughs> because I I, I play so rarely, but I absolutely love snooker. And in fact, I wrote um, a a series of blogs over a couple of years, quite recently for another website. I won't mention a rival to you, but uh, just for fun, for a mate, and very much enjoyed writing them. And of course, going sometimes to the tournaments in order to interview players. Such a different world from Formula One. Yeah. Because, you know, if you start off as a Formula One journalist... To get to the stage where you could interview Lewis Hamilton is either never or many, many years. Mm. Start writing a little blog on snooker, you can be interviewing Ronnie O'Sullivan within weeks.
1: Yeah. Incredible. Um, Flip that on his head then. What are you bad at?
2: The worst dancer ever. (laughs) The worst dancer ever. I make your average drunken... Dad dancer at a wedding look like Fred Astaire.
0: Is it is it like a? Do your arms go nuts or, or is it is it just general weird body movements?
2: I can't do it. I, I the bod, I, I was always good at sport. I was good at football. I, I can play snooker. Uh, I used to love cricket. I can I can do sport. I just something. I will tell you what, it fills me. What people dance beautifully, uh, whatever kind of dancing, um, fills me with admiration, but also pathetic melancholy. (laughs) Because I think, why can't I even do anything remotely, even close? Can't even enjoy
1: myself in a dance. <laughs> can't even enjoy myself. Can't even yeah. do a simple box step. Uh, I always whack that out. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yes. Classic <laughs> box step. Um, I'm not okay. going to show you. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank God for Zoom. Um, okay, uh, we've got
2: last few questions for you before our final. Any, three. Anyway, I should say, I should oh. say. Of course, I can't show you because. I'm sitting in my underpants as everybody. <laughs> Aren't we all? Always is. Yeah. Always is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's too, it's, why bother? You don't need to be. Well, what bother. about
0: socks? Are you gone with socks or not bothered with socks? Ooh. No socks. No so oh. socks. <laughs> yeah. Overrated. It's too hot for socks just, anyway. Just the t-shirts. All you need saves on washing. Yeah. Um, yes.
1: Now, before we get to our final three, which we ask all our guests, uh, quick question for you. Zach Brown or Ron Dennis?
2: nothing against Zach Brown but it's got to be Ron Dennis obviously I worked with him for 10 years and I worked with Zach Brown for 6 months um, <laughs> I work, the team you know the McLaren team I've got lots of great old mates there and I want them to enjoy the success that I enjoyed and you know good luck to them all but no for me Ron Dennis all time great
0: Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, As Harry mentioned, we have three final questions for you, which we ask of all of our guests, and they throw up various degrees and different types of answers. Number one, I shall kick off. What's got you excited at the moment?
2: I have to say, I know we've touched on it, but I have to say, you know, what's got me excited is the possibility interrupted infuriatingly by obviously the tragedy of COVID-19. But what's got me excited is the possibility that we might actually manage to buck the trend which has been trending for far too long and have female racing drivers at a significantly high level. And yes, maybe Formula 1, but also, you know, Formula 2, international Formula 3. Le Mans at the highest level, IndyCar. One of our drivers in W Series, Jessica Hawkins... Her ambition is not Formula One. She wants to be a British touring car driver. Well, if she was a successful British touring car driver, wouldn't that be fantastic? That has got me excited. I had, you know, I was sceptical, but I now firmly believe that it is a career ambition, for me certainly, to be part of a movement. And I don't just call W Series a, a, a sport or a series. I call it a movement and a mission to try to further the interests and make successful uh, female racing drivers. And however that pans out, obviously we'd love to see a woman win the Monaco Grand Prix one day. But however it pans out, and that's probably a little while away, that has got me excited in answer to your question.
1: Mm, Very good. If not doing what you've done and what you are currently doing,
2: what would you be doing? Well, before I found journalism... And ducked into it, I will say, I did all sorts of silly jobs. Well, not silly jobs, jobs that didn't pay very well and, you know, weren't very, weren't what you traditionally call good jobs. You know, minicab driving, van driving, delivery driving. I worked on a jewellery store in uh, a market, second-hand jewellery. Um, betting shops, greyhound racing, all sorts. So if I'd been unlucky and never had any breaks... I'd probably be driving an Uber, except that, um, except that I'm so appalling with IT that I probably would uh, 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 mistype the app or whatever they do. <laughs> yes, something like that uh, uh, is probably, if I'm not being, you know, on a worst-case scenario, I probably would have, you know, kind of stumbled through my life uh, and ended up doing something like that. The other answer to the question is novel writing, which is in my blood from my mother and my grandmother. And I have now at last dipped my toe in the water and published a novel. Um, you know, if, if it's at all well-received, do all proceeds go to charity. So there's another big reason for me wanting it to be successful. But if it's at all well-received, then yes, I might well want to... Try my hand at writing more novels. Yeah. If it's badly received, I'll curl up in the corner and lick my wounds and write nothing ever again.
0: Yeah, yeah. So essentially, you would have been a very well-read Uber driver. <laughs> um, I'm sure they exist. I'm sure they do. Um, final question for you before we let you get on with your day: What are you scared of?
2: Well, we've managed to get through however long it is without talking about politics so i'm going to answer with four words donald trump Boris Johnson.
1: <laughs> well
0: said. That deserves a round of applause. And I think that's a, a, the perfect way to end our, our excellent chat with uh, Matt Bishop. Thank you so so much for joining us. We've talked about all sorts of different stuff. There's plenty there for everybody to get their teeth into. Um, we'll have to do it again because there's still a load more that we haven't covered. But uh, for now, Matt Bishop, thank you for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Thank you very much for having me
1: on. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials twitter at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and on facebook just search motormouth you can download the motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from mmtv create your own social profile interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast